I'm curious whether there's um, there's any ability to try to generalize, like for example, uh, if you ask these experts, you know, in light of these new naval exercises, what do you think about, you know, the aggressiveness of China in general? Um, would it be possible to, to make inferences about um, what kind of causal network links these things, whether it's like the how these different factors get weighted, or whether they're just being summed or averaged or maxed or something like this? Like, is their ability to sort of tweak these uh, sub questions and gain insights to yeah, there, there, being there is. You, you could say, uh, for example, let, let, let's, assuming that. Um, Brett Stevens, a conservative Wall Street columnist, negative view of the Iranian agreement is correct. How likely is it are you to observe X, Y, or Z? Versus assuming that, say, uh, an alternative view is correct. How likely are you to observe X, Y, and Z? Um, so you'd, you'd, you'd create likelihood ratios, essentially, um, that would, once resolved, should tip the scales of plausibility a little bit toward one side or the other. Um, now, ideally, you would have the Tom Friedmans and Brett Stevens of the world nominating the questions themselves uh, and saying, if these questions resolved in the other direction, I would be willing to change my mind by delta. Um, I mean, the, the most ambitious of all the scenarios is one in which you would have, say, um, two elite camps. You'd have, uh, say, a Krugman-Keynesian camp and a Niall Ferguson austerity camp, uh, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you'd have two different camps uh, on, the, on the wisdom of quantitative easing. Well, that's not so much of an issue in the US anymore. But um, you'd have two different camps on fiscal monetary policy. And e each camp would have the challenge of generating, say, 10 or 20 questions that it thinks it has a comparative advantage in answering. Um, now, here, victory has a clear-cut meaning. Victory means you not only answer your question's better, you answer my question's better, too. Um, that, that would suggest, if, if, I, if I then come back and say, I'm not willing to change my mind at all, uh, well, that's my prerogative not to change my mind, but I'm going to look somewhat foolish. Phil, how are questions generated for the tournament? Uh, different ways at different times. Uh, they were originally, they were generated by the intelligence community, and then they shifted that task to us in year three, and we had, um, Political, some political, a team of political scientists who worked on that. And so question generation clearly is part of the emerging discipline here. It is. The very important part. Yeah. A crucial part. I, I, I think for tournaments to have a really positive effect on society, we need to make a very concerted effort to improve the quality of the question generation process and to engage people in public debates to participate in that. And the problem here is, I mean, I guess where Danny and I tend to come a little closer to Danny's pessimism on this, it's really, really hard to convince someone who's a high-status incumbent to play in a game in which the most plausible outcome is, the best plausible outcome is you're going to break even. Because your fans already expect you to win, right? <laughs> so if you win, <laughs> you know, you're basically breaking even. The more likely outcome is you're, gonna, you're not going to do all that well. Uh, because there is a somewhat loose coupling, and many, many pundits probably are. Their forecasting expertise probably is overrated. So you're partly there. Question clustering is already an, an effort to move, keep rigor and move into relevance. What else have you got in the for other questions? 
you want to get it from the public? Well, there, there, yeah, there are other ways of doing it. Um, there, there are interesting silver standard sorts of measures. Draj and Prelak, a guy from MIT who worked with us in, in, in years three and four, uh, proposed. Um, and one of them is, um, rather than asking you to, well, this is not rather than. This is in addition to. In addition to asking you to predict those many indicators about Russia, we would also ask you to predict um, whether an expert panel on Russia believes that at the end of 2016, Russia has become even more aggressive than it was in 2015. Now, we don't have a clear operational definition of what more aggressive means other than the expert panel consensus. So it's a sort of like a beauty contest uh, prediction. You're, you're predicting other people's views in the future where those views are determinate. Um, and no, I mean, in, in many cases, it would be quite obvious, right? Did you do any of these things that predicting future poll results? Other than, you know, elections are sort of poll results in a way, but public yeah. polling goes all, on all the time. Yeah. Are you doing any stuff that relates to predicting yes. polling might go? Yeah. So occasionally our forecasters were pitted against um, election, well, the question is whether they could do better than election polls. Uh, in general, it's very, very hard to do any better than what Nate Silver and other meta-poll meta analysts do, which is essentially aggregating lots of poll results and weighting the poll somewhat by quality. Um, it's, it's hard to beat that as a benchmark. Um, there was one interesting case where the super forecasters really did do that fairly decisively, uh, and it was on the Scottish secessionist referendum, uh, in which the polls were fairly close. Um, uh, although if you'd done a straight Nate Silver aggregation on the polls, I think you still would have said it would fail. But there was a lot of hype around secession, and there was a lot of there was a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and the, the London bookies, I think, had it at uh, I, I, they were um, fairly close. It wasn't even odds, but it was getting close to that. Um, and um, the super forecasters were fairly consistently saying it was about 15% likelihood event. Uh, they only spiked up once when there was one poll that showed a majority for secession. They spiked up to about 30, but then they quickly reverted back in response to the, to, to the, to, to the other polls. Um, now, why did they, why, what gave them an advantage there? Um, I don't think it's that mysterious. I, I, it, it, there, there, there is uh, some historical record of voters becoming more conservative prior to major votes like that. Uh, uh, one of the most famous cases being the non-secession of Quebec from Canada. So I have a question about the cluster questions leading to an outcome that we feel comfortable with. And maybe I just don't understand the process, but it seems to me that each of those separate events about which you might be asking a question about China doing this or Russia doing that may not altogether add up to actually China or Russia being more aggressive. It may be that that particular decision was a discrete decision in response to a particular thing that doesn't add up, but you, despite there, there being any number. But the cluster is tapping multiple, somewhat distinct things. Right. But so it doesn't mean that, that the end result the is that the country would make a more aggressive decision no, it, on something big. It, no, that's, that, that, that doesn't necessarily mean anything of the sort. I mean, I'm just it, trying it, to figure out what it, it, it tells us. It's tipping a probabilistic calculus one way. It's tip, tipping a debate one way or the other. To, to, to make debate more civilized, uh, you want to encourage people to be more granular. Uh, yeah. And this is a way of doing that. Uh, I think even the most opinionated hedgehogs 
when they're in forecasting tournaments do become a little more circumspect. I think Barb's evidence on open-mindedness has, has, yeah. has some bearing on that. But this is another area where the story, storytelling becomes right. really important. So in some sense, the link between the questions you're asking and the decision that you're making mm -hmm. depends on the model of the world and the story of how things operate right. and so on. And so, well, people, so it may be that the, the way to, that what people really would like to have as a product is a story to believe in. These questions are ways of them reinforcing the story or not. But it might actually be more useful if the super forecasters, instead of just giving you a probability, actually gave you, you know, the alternate stories of what, what might happen. That might actually be a product that's more consumable. So what, you'd be asking so, the super forecasters for what? I, I would be asking them to, hey, paint me a picture of what you what you think is going to happen. The big story is what you think is going to happen. So don't don't answer just my questions of will this event happen, will that event happen. Yeah. Give me a scenario. Okay, so we want to move from yeah. a kind of a pointillist painting, right, dot, dot, right. dot. Yeah, so I'm, something right, because something I'm asking, you, exactly. I'm asking <laughs> you, show me what color is here, what color is here, what color is here. Well, yeah. I may have, I, I may be answering your question because I've got a very different picture in mind than you do in, in asking me those questions. Yeah. Right. And, and so it's, it's yeah. a much easier to be a consumer of a, of a yeah. alternative story than it is to be a consumer of a bunch of facts that don't necessarily yeah. fit your story. Uh, we certainly could ask super forecasters to do that, and, and some of them would be game, and some of them would be good at it. Um, there are other people who are also good at it. They might not be good at forecasting, but they might be very good at broad brush stuff. Like right. Stuart and I were talking about scenarios. Scenario people. Scenario people yes, really specialize in doing yeah, that's right. broad brush stuff. Yeah, so I'm actually trying to is there a way of combining it? If you have the forecasters yeah, that are they are in fact good at painting these points because they have a picture of their head. Maybe it's more useful rather than just I mean you might measure their quality by measuring how do, how well they do it. No, well, but then yeah. You, their output might not be the point, so output might be the story. Okay, so, every, so the, the Congress is the intelligence community, it's, I think it's every, every basic, to, to, to project out 20 years scenario exercises. Now this is beyond the realm of, you know, from a forecasting point of view, this is extremely tenuous exercise, but the National Intelligence Council is responsible for creating something called global trends. I think the most, global, most recent global trends document was global trends 2030. Uh, I guess that's 15 years out. Um, I don't know exactly when it was written. It took a long time in preparation. Um, but, okay, so there's, there are scenarios in, in the National Intelligence Council's Global Trends 2030. And you could take scenarios from that document. You could say, okay, here is uh, a doomster China implosion scenario mm -hmm. by 2025. Uh, and if, then they, that would be the big question. It was a big cluster of questions. Is, is the doomster scenario, the China, China scenario? What things would we have to observe in 20, what, what things would we be more likely to observe in 2016 if that scenario were true? What, and what would be likely to observe if it were false? Uh, and you would, you, you would you, you push your subject matter experts to think of early warning indicators of which historical scenario trajectory so that's, so that's is. That's pretty much how the intelligence community operates. But yeah. that's just a different it's actually not. But oh, okay. <laughs> they, 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 they should. Okay. I thought it would be a step forward if they did operate that way. <laughs> I think it's too limited, Danny. I think narratives 
I'm more and more going in the direction the narrative is always mystery. And I saw the scenario planning, and I, I see that you know part of what we're seeing here is a cure. Danny's perspective on things is a cure, and this here is a cure to taking stories seriously. We are cognitively so wired to love stories that it gets in our way. And what if it were the case? I'm, I'm sorry, just one, one second. What, what if it were the case that we lived in a world in which the super forecasters have virtually no ability to explain, and the people who are really good at generating explanations are really not very good at forecasting? What if, what if the skills really were radically dissociated? How would we want to organize the intelligence community, or in any organization for that matter, uh, that has to, has, has to engage in foresight? Do you think that's true? Hmm? I, don't, I think that's too, too strong, but I think it's an interesting question to ask. I think there are, di there are certainly different skill sets here that are at work, uh, and they're not as tightly correlated as often supposed. I think the conflict I, I see in this approach is the question of what you mean by story. Um, if you make predictions, there's a story underlying that prediction. I think what you really need to say is that um, if I'm going to make a prediction that something's going to happen, I should accompany it with um, basically 10 stories. Like if my prediction is based on uh, 10 different possibilities of calculated, I should say, you know, story one, I have a 60% chance that this is going to happen. Story two is this. We're not necessarily saying that there should be one aggregate story. If you have one aggregate story to try to tie all these things together, you have information loss, and that makes it worse. But if you can't, so I think it would be a mistake to try to have one uh, story in the style of pundit would have to do because of the information loss. But it might help to have, to break down your uh, prediction, uh, accompany your prediction with the stories that you've actually based your prediction model on. And right now, the prediction model method, I think, misses you're saying you should add that storyline to it. It doesn't have to be one aggregate story, but it could be basically a, a breakdown of the, uh, of the uh, prediction model that you created for yourself. And a good predictor would be updating those stories with new yeah. information. But in your parallel world, and this is obviously something of an advertising agency speaking, <laughs> the perfect solution would be for the super forecasters to hire really good storytellers <laughs> to dress up their predictions in a way that was easily spread. I mean, there is a shamanism, I mean, there is a value to shamanism, yeah. correct? <laughs> okay, I mean, you know, in, in order to actually unify human action, there's yeah. a kind of shamanistic value to a good story, which it coordinates people magnificently. But, but the problem with that is, how do we decide what's a, which one is a good story and which one isn't? Uh, well, I mean, it's, I, I think the, the question your alternative reality is raising for me is uh, if people are not even latently narrativizing their predictions, uh, what could possibly be going on in their heads? I mean, like, how do they get from point A to point B? And I mean, if you see, if, if you were to compare investors say that um, you know either make decisions just based on gut instinct which we generally regard as stupid I, to yeah. Warren Buffett Warren Buffett would say look every decision I make I can tell you exactly why I think the world's going to play out this way and that's why I'm I, I, I think that's that. right I, I think I think there, there, there has to be some implicit mental model behind what they're doing um, it may be though that the mental model narratives that are behind the super forecaster forecast are a tad boring uh, it may be that when you ask a super forecaster, um, it, how likely is a given um, incumbent leader in a in, in sub-Saharan African country going to be in power one, two, three, four years ahead? Uh, 
the super, the super forecaster looks at a base rate of dictator survival uh, and then makes some simple updates on the basis of domestic political unrest and gets a probability that way rather than telling a rich story about the... I mean, that's a good story, though. I mean, that would be a... For some people, it's a good story. Well, because it's a good story. Mostly things stay the same. If it turns out that that's how the world works, then that's an exciting story for someone to have uncovered. And uh, I guess just to Danny's point, it's, it seems like no, nothing bad could come out of asking people to explain how they're thinking. But isn't calling someone a super forecaster a story? In a sense, it's certainly a narrative. How do they get named? <laughs> do they go into this? Do they join the super forecasting team? Yeah, and it was like saying you're <laughs> economy. Yeah, you're not going to be a super. Yeah, the one guy did not show up. He said, "I'll sit there being a skeptic, and who cares?" Right. So he didn't want to come to this event. Uh, Danny's hallmark is skepticism, you know, and to some degree, you wouldn't join a team called the Super Forecasters. It looks like a, you know, a Marvel well, comic. If invited. One neutral name or less dorky name than Super Forecasters. Like you're going to get software programmers to be Super Forecasters because cool people wouldn't want to be. The Isaiah Berlin thing where he mentions the distinction between Johnson and Foxes was actually a piece of literary criticism, wasn't it? I mean, it's a long time ago. Um, but I, I seem to remember the Isaiah Berlin's thing, the ultimate fox, in his view, was Shakespeare. It was about Tolstoy, wasn't it? Right. Like okay. But I think his ultimate fox, in his view, was Shakespeare, who was a pretty good storyteller. So there is an argument that there is foxy storytelling and there's hedgehoggy storytelling. Yes, um, that's certainly the Isaiah Berlin. It's Berlin. just more boring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> but I mean, actually, I mean, you know, the thing that you really got to be terrified of is hedgehog story. I mean, I, you know, I think I think the hedgehog story. If if you look at, we were talking about Harvard Business Review uh, case studies of businesses that are successful, and it's it, every single piece of success is attributed to those things which the people who write such articles think to be important. So that, you know, there's massive selection bias in terms of to what they attribute success. But I mean, equally, you can, you know, no one's ever tried foxy business writing, the foxy business case study. But I think it'd be a lot more interesting and actually a lot more accurate. It's a little like, you know, that, that thing that, you know, scientific papers are actually Medawar, was it Peter Medawar? They're all an act of slight dishonesty because they completely misrepresent the means by which people arrived at the insight as if it was much more sequential and logical right. than the reality that it depicts. Right, so the Foxy, the Foxy, the reason there's not a big market for Foxy case studies in business schools is because MBAs would probably recoil from it. So, yeah. And business schools are pretty customer friendly. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. And we, we just had this argument last night, which I think quite interesting. Which is the standard, if you talk to people about Uber, the standard definition and the explanation for its success is all about disintermediation and supply chain and blah blah blah. And our argument is that actually it's just a psych hack that previously, when people phoned for a taxi, there was a period of irritating uncertainty between booking the taxi <laughs> and its arrival. You know, is it there yet? Has he parked around the corner? What if he's got the address wrong? And because in Uber you can look at it on a map, it removes uncertainty, and people prefer that, and that's the story. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a, 
to me, interested in psychology. That's actually a much more heroic uh, explanation. But no one writing a business school case is going to talk about that. That'll get about one paragraph. And the ease of payment, where you can just get out of the cab and say goodbye, <laughs> which you know, in actual human behavior is probably quite a big factor. So the truth can sometimes be very prosaic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and military depictions of military success, no one ever says that the Battle of Agincourt was won because it was muddy, you know, for instance. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know. I think we're talking about the same thing. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Um, but here's a question more about better stories and worse stories, and how do you tell? Do you mean really stories that have to do with accuracy of prediction, or what, so what's well? It's certainly not the aesthetics. It's not. There, there are people who don't believe the numbers without the story. That's what we were talking about right now. And then there are people who don't believe the story without the numbers. And we we want, we need the story. But what's a good story? We know what a good number is. We should well, know what well, a good. But Rory's, Rory's suggestion, I think, is a pretty good one. It's pretty cynical, yeah. but it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. You could, you could. I think <laughs> a storyteller. <laughs> <laughs> a good story is one that converts more people uh, into. So we look at conversion rates, and that's what would make a good story. Huh. So actually, when we reflect that's on all. That's not necessarily the best explanatory story. Right, that's the story that moves people. Yeah, then what's the, it's it goes back to what's the goal? So we're we're talking about the Iraq, the two thousand three Iraq whole situation, and one of if one of the questions that were asked at the time was uh, how influential Iran will be in the whole world after right after the invasion of Iraq and removal of Saddam, and if that question was asked, and then um, uh, most of the super forecasters believe it, it will be highly you know, highly likely that Iran will be much stronger. <coughs> the story about that could have changed public yeah. policy and mm -hmm. could have yeah. and, and added that, a lot of pressure. Yeah. And, and there, there certainly were some very prominent uh, political scientists, realists, who were saying exactly that, right, Bob? Before 2003. Exactly. They, they, thought, they thought you were, you, were, you were destroying the balance of power, essentially, in the Middle East. Well, let me tell you um, about storytelling that um, that I, I research. So this is the case of uh, Jimmy Carter's decision about whether or not to try to hire, do a hostage rescue for the Iranian hostages. So they took several months to decide this. So it's, and there's about eight or ten people involved. So they, they did it with experts and with care. And they knew the stakes were important. And if you look at the debate on, I mean, how did they go about reaching this? Um, it was almost all storytelling. It was in a form of, here's an historical analogy. Mm -hmm. For example, um, one of the decision makers was in Israel at the time of the Entebbe rescue, uh, when the Israelis pulled off a very uh, long distance, surprising, and very successful hostage rescue. So he said, we ought to try it based on that experience. Somebody else said, I was involved when the North Koreans took the Pueblo boat hostage and wouldn't release the crew until we apologized. But we could try a hostage rescue. Well, we decided not to do a hostage rescue. It was too risky, and we thought that diplomatic means would eventually work, and they did. They released the thing without a, a military operation. So he said, based on my experience, we should try diplomatic 
that is longer. This was actually a military person. And the, altogether, there were about eight, there were eight examples of hostage rescues that were mentioned, each of which was either diplomatic or military, and each of which was now known to be successful or failure. So I tried the exercise like an expert, of, I mean like a, uh, uh, like you would present it. Well, how do you aggregate these eight cases into a judgment about whether in this case, so for example, if there are a lot of hostages, it should make it harder for a military operation to work. If it was, if it was in a territory that was immediately controlled by hostile forces, that should make it harder, and so on. And so I tried coding all these by plausible criteria uh, and coming up with uh, an estimate. But that's not at all how these people did it. They all did it by saying, my single case is, is the most relevant. And what was really surprising was that, my, that the cases that people cited were almost all cases that they had a personal experience with and not whether it was more similar to the current case or not. One of the things that was, uh, and, and, and there was a lot of um, censorship on what cases. For example, um, you may remember that Mussolini was rescued by Hitler when he was first captured by the partisans, and that worked. Uh, and it was done much like Antebi with sort of a false front of who the hostage take. The rescuers pretended to be authorities, basically. Um, but nobody mentioned that one, because we don't want to learn anything from what Hitler got. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Even if he was a good and hostage rescue. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a taboo historical analogy. Exactly. That, 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 tomorrow morning, right? So, no, but for our purposes of that prediction, the striking thing was that story that the number of cases that seem to be relevant to the current policy debate, which I hope we get into the relationship between prediction and choice, yeah. um, was finite and identified, but not aggregated. Stop. And could it have been aggregated? Yes, you could have said, well, uh, uh, these under under the conditions that was most similar, under the similar way of doing it, one is by selection, say, which of these cases is most similar to the current case? And let's go with that. But a better way to do it is say, which of the four out of these eight are most similar? And what would the odds of success if you do a military operation and then where else would be more similar? So there are ways of, of, of starting that process, but nobody did that. There's big path dependency there, though, isn't there? Because what? Path dependency, because if you negotiate, it doesn't preclude military action. But if you actually engage military action, it effectively precludes any support, completely changes your right. negotiating power. So everybody was game to negotiate for a few months, but the few months were over, and yeah. negotiation didn't seem to get anywhere. So how much of the discussion was an honest attempt to evaluate the situation and make decision versus an attempt to justify the decisions that they made. In other words, people came in Canada with a predisposition toward diplomatic or not, and then they told these stories to justify what they'd already decided. Well, there's no direct way of knowing that, but I think that uh, in most cases, the stories that they told were the ones that convinced them. 
understand the power of experience being so overwhelming in that. It is. That's what really struck me. Which isn't so much um, available in your in the tournament format. And maybe it's twisted, that's not. I mean maybe we should need techniques to avoid overdependence on personal experience. Let me give you another example that's really uh, even more compelling. Uh, when Lyndon Johnson in 65 was considering whether to escalate American involvement in Vietnam in a big way, there was also a debate. They also took some time, and also about a dozen people. Uh, and um, the one naysayer was George Ball, who said, uh, well, if, uh, if we send more Americans, they're going to regard that as more foreigners. He was sort of like, well, that it would be like the French experience in Indochina that they would see Americans as foreigners, they would be a strong nationalist uh, and broad objection, and it would basically uh, fail. And it turned out that he was, he was in Paris during the Dien Bien Phu disaster when the, when the French did lose, and he was working with the French government. So that his he had a personal experience with the French defeat that the others didn't have, who all looked at it as the French don't know how to fight, the American Army knows how to fight, so don't bother me with that experience. Um, and, and, uh, and Johnson made a real effort to say, write this up. I want to hear this. I want to, and, and he drew them out, although he was in minor cases. Uh, and, uh, and Russ testified in Congress later that he never understood what George Ball was getting at, even though he said it over and over and explained it about the historical analogy. Um, so I think getting from the question of how do you make predictions, point predictions, um, to the question of um, how do you make decisions on a policy question is, is worth uh, contemplating. I, I think that's the ultimate goal, is, is, is to bridge those. But I, I, I think the path to that objective lies through question clusters. Uh, I, I think we have to have clusters of clusters that are simultaneously rigorous and relevant to big issues well, that then can funnel into the decision process. I think that will help, but you haven't gotten yet into what, are the, what, what might you do about this situation. Now, you did mention this possibility that you could say, if the United States does X or Y, what will happen, and then you could see uh, whether people are good at understanding the consequences of choices. Mm -hmm. But then you have to consider, too, what, what are the options? Yeah. I think there's a big difference between making forecasts that are not at all contingent on action and making forecasts that are contingent on action. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and I think the, the, the direction that IARPA has taken uh, has been very much toward conditional questions on action. Uh, which suggests that they, they want to get to where you, you want them to get. Remember, IARP is an institute, I mean, the uh, defense, um, I'm sorry, the intelligence community has institutionalized in the United States to separate choice from prediction. And there's good reasons for that. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, it seems to me, as, as a citizen, or, um, we're interested uh, in improving the quality of decision. Yes. It really does answer Martin's question a little bit about what makes a good story. Which is what makes a good story is being able to present a set of predictions 
in a way that people can personally relate it to it. So if you can show a set of facts or a set of, you know, paint a picture of the world that people can sort of see, oh, that connects to my own personal experience. Mm -hmm. That's a good story. I mean, that, and it could be a national experience, like you right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, for decades, that was a compelling story. And it's not a characteristic of the story. It's a characteristic of the people who hear the stories. So it makes a good story is a story that will be convincing. You know, that's what you'll get when fooled in the story. Highlights. Can I do another question about uh, predictability? So your emphasis has always been on can, can a, uh, a forecaster predict the world? But another question in international politics especially is can the world predict the United States, for example? Now, sometimes it pays to be predictable, sometimes it pays to be unpredictable. But let me give you a, a, an interesting case of the lead up to the Korean War. The United States uh, officially said that we have a defense perimeter, this is in February 1950, we have a defense perimeter that runs from Japan through the Philippines. Uh, and this was, and, and countries beyond that will have to take care of themselves. We have no commitment to them. And this was based on the uh, idea, the military, there's no point in having a defense line with some hill out there that's unprotectable. You, that, you should draw a line that's defensible. So we did, and we announced it. So we said, and Korea was clearly beyond that line, and we had no commitments to Korea. And so Mao and, and Stalin were both asked by North Korea whether they would support an invasion from the north to the south. And they both said, yeah, because the United States, presumably, because the United States has just announced that they will not protect Cuba. Um, I'm sorry, they will not protect Korea, South Korea. We're working the one. Perfectly predictable, right? So then when Truman heard that the North Koreans invaded the South Koreans, he was at home in Missouri, got on a plane, and by the time he got off the plane, he decided that this would not be acceptable, and we would do whatever was necessary to overcome this invasion. And he got off the plane, and he, got, he told his advisors, and they all agreed with him. So instantaneously, in a sense, he, he made another choice, which made the United States completely unpredictable. Now, we would have been much better off to be predictable. Said we defended, they probably wouldn't have attacked. And if, and if we had to be predictable in the other direction, then we wouldn't have defended it and um, we wouldn't have had the war. So, um, I find the fascinating question is when we want to be predictable, can we make ourselves predictable? <laughs> Part of the byplay of threat and military stuff is being able to make a case that, well, you know, Nixon's crazy. He may do anything. And uh, the unpredictable becomes a quasi-military advantage. And it's been used many times, often with success. The very line, the very idea of announcing a perimeter which suggests that you will not defend beyond it. That is probably a mistake. Yeah. In many cases, the German 
Did you throw away an option? But see, what we didn't understand about ourselves was that we would react very differently if they act when the consequences of our current announcement were made. We just didn't think that far ahead. We weren't good predictors. We didn't predict ourselves. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We weren't good predictors of ourselves. Interesting. Which you think would be the easiest thing. And it was the same administration. The characters hadn't changed at all. Yeah. And it was only a few months different. But the realities of the invasion were so sudden and brutal and reminiscent of... And the story <laughs> was Munich. Yeah. Right. Truman said to himself, Munich. we appeased Hitler and he kept asking for more. If we do the same, Stalin will keep asking for more and eventually it's going to be World War III. That's what he came up with immediately. That's what he told the American public and that's how they conceived of it, which was very, which was extremely different framing than what is the best way to draw a defense. Yeah, and he might have been right. In about what? I mean, that... That it if was like really given that they had the fact. That is, maybe a mistake was with the announcement. Exactly. So they should have predicted them that that's how they would react later. And if they, if they, if they could have predicted themselves, literally themselves, I mean Truman and Atchison, uh, <laughs> a few months later on a, on a situation that they focused on carefully and made a public announcement, this is not, uh, you know, just kind of something they didn't pay attention to. But they couldn't predict themselves, and therefore they got into trouble. I have a question about the tournament. Do you communicate to the uh, super forecasters that how they perform versus others, and does that um, kind of like uh, correlate positively or negatively with their future predictions? Like, is it better to hide if, if I'm a super forecaster? Is it better to communicate to me that I am a super forecaster, or it's better to actually? Not give me that piece of information. Oh, I, I think I see what you're, you're, you're getting at. So you could, you could imagine randomly selecting a group of people and calling them super forecasters, even though they're not super forecasters. But you could imagine taking people who are actually performing at a super, super level and never calling them super forecasters. Mm -hmm. uh, and what would the impact of those manipulations mm -hmm. be? Um, given the horse race dynamic of this tournament, we didn't really think we had the luxury of testing those um, um, kind of Pygmalion type of facts. Um, and we, um, but, but they're, they're very good questions. Yeah, because uh, I feel like if I'm perceived as super forecaster, I, I kind of know that that does get into me psychologically. I'd probably be more um, um, attached to my forecastings than, he would so it has the opposite effect. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I, well, that's true. And, and uh, super forecasters uh, do not regress toward the mean nearly as much as people who are just below the super forecasting rank. Uh, so they, 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 they do hold on to their position uh, quite, quite um, tenaciously. Um, but did you inform them? So yeah, oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, okay. super forecasters knew that, and, they, and people, people each year wanted to achieve that status. And, and now, we oh, have, okay. now we have three or 400 super forecasters. So we have. A bunch of people who are, and some of them put some of them, yeah. and some of them put it on their resumes. Yeah, some put it on their resumes and so forth. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Uh, I have a question. Uh, just thinking, uh, reflecting on what Bob and Danny have been saying. There's something about storytelling that must have psychological effects, probably comforting effects, in the case that your prediction is turns out to be wrong, and so. You know, I'm just putting myself in the shoes of someone who was involved in Entebbe and now 
maybe that has persuaded me to make a certain prediction, that if it turns out wrong, at, at least looking at my own psychological fragility, I might say, well, you know, it, it, that it worked out in the tabby, uh, so what could I do? Or something, there must be something also about storytelling that I was, I'm, I was wrong, but at least I had a good reason for being wrong. Right, yes. Yeah. Or it felt right. Isn't yeah. this like Magnamara and the Fog of War? I mean, that's essentially what he's doing, is telling the story mm -hmm. about being wrong. That's the whole film, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. So I think we're running, getting very close to lunch. Uh, I, would, I would just say that this is an incremental learning process in the, the des, learning how to design forecasting tournaments, learning how to assess accuracy, learning how to design better questions, learning how to create question clusters that can help tip the scales of important debates, and then finally linking up to decision making, which has definitely not been done, partly for institutional reasons, but partly also because we don't really know how to do it well yet. Um, I mean, there, there are some formal glib answers you can give to how to improve probabilities translate into different decisions. You can say, well, on Wall Street, it's often quite obvious when you're pricing options, uh, those option prices have probabilities essentially woven into them. So, I mean, if, if, they're gonna, if, if the probability of, of, of oil price you know, going below $50 a barrel in the next six months is X, that, that has a, a real impact, direct impact on, on future contracts. Uh, and so you can do your, your expected value you know, MBA equations and you can crank out the right answer. There's, there, there's a mathematical framework for entering probabilities into the decision calculus. Um, in many of these other domains, it seems to be more qualitative, uh, sometimes called in psychology reason-based choice. Um, and it's a question of, well, how much would a probability have to be nudged in order for um, uh, the, the director of national intelligence to decide that uh, the Russians are likely to go into frame. So when, when, when Danny and I were talking to the Director of National Intelligence about the IARPA project, one of the questions we asked had to do with, well, if, if you had known a month before, uh, if you had known in the summer of 20, which was it, 2014, during the Sochi Olympics, if you had known during the Sochi Olympics the Russians were going to move into uh, the Ukraine, if you'd, if you'd know, the probability of the forecast tournament in, during the Sochi Olympics was 0 0.001 of the Russians going in, in, into the Crimea. Uh, and then there was a sudden spike upward to 0.25. Uh, would you have, would the United States have done something different from what it did? I mean, what, what would the? This is almost like a psychophysical question of how 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 did changes in probability map onto propensity to act? Um, and that that's not well defined at all. I mean, the finance realm expected value equations that's well defined, but this other realm is kind of murky and difficult. And I think that's part of what's bothering you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there is a completely different way of connecting predictions to decisions, which is, you're assuming you have a set of decisions to make and you look for the predictions. But you could also say, if you could also look for the actionable things that you could do if you could predict something. Mm -hmm. So for instance, in financial things, if I told you for sure I can predict the price of palladium, then I can buy palladium if it's going to go up and sell it if it's going to go down. So it might be that a way to, in some sense, harvest the ability to predict mm -hmm. is to generate from those actions that you can take with knowledge. Yes. So instead, instead of posing the okay, that's very interesting. So instead of the going about the, the approach I was describing to clusters was um, 
How likely is the question to resolve one or the other way if it were true that, say, Friedman's diagnosis of Iran or Brett Stevens' diagnosis of Iran is true? An alternative way of doing it would be um, making it contingent on action rather than on the res resolution of a big issue. It would be... So he's also saying what a, a good question has to do with Choices available. Right, right, but, but I'm just trying, to, I'm trying to frame exactly how you asked the question. It would be, I think you're really onto something there. Um, it, 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 it would be, you'd want questions that would tip the action calculus. So, how, what, what kind of a question? You want actionable questions. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, part of that is tipping actions that follow from questions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's the. Yeah. So, so the way the intelligence process works now is people ask these sort of very big questions, like, well, what's, what are Chinese leaders in text? <laughs> and somebody has to translate those into you know, more specific questions and more specific questions. And, more specific. and then by the time the answers trickle back up, they really don't have any connection to the decisions that people have to make. So, so think of we're resorted to these sort of indirect methods like telling stories and so on to try to yeah. reconnect them. So think of those things that if the probability lurched up by 10%, the United States would be more likely to do X, Y, or Z. Yeah. And that, and that's a very hard question, but it's... <laughs> no. No? Is that not it? It's, it's, it's more like what's the mapping? Given the questions, what's the mapping of actions that then become reasonable, possible, plausible? And once you have those, it's sort of the question of given whatever your incentives are, given probabilities, yeah. you know, what are your choice structures look yeah. like? I mean, there's something Is that closer yeah. to yeah. There's something appealingly decisive about what you're saying, yet it, I, I think it's very risky to bypass the, all the discourse that surrounds these things. Um, I mean, there's, the, there, there is this massive talk about Iran or about China, and there, 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 are, there are these schools of thought that are linked up to policymakers of, on one side or the other. Either people are out of power temporarily or in power temporarily, and that I think you, I think that forecasting tournament clusters. Serve, have the valuable function of connecting up to that political reality. But uh, this other approach doesn't doesn't have to disconnect. I mean, that, well, I don't it, see it, that as an no. Way. Yeah, maybe not. I, uh, uh, At all. Uh, the question clusters clearly are appropriate when you're trying to define intent, because yeah, they, when the other side is an intention, a general intention to do something, there are many possible actions in with that general intention. So that I understand, in fact, it would help me a lot. Uh, you know, if you said there are questions about intent, what have you sort of codified the, what other kinds of things lead to question plus? Well, propensity because to collapse. Well, strength questions, propensity to collapse, propensity of the Eurozone to collapse, say, or propensity of China, or good. So those sorts of things. Thank you. Yeah. So strength and intent. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it could be enough. I mean, you know, it, it helps a lot in yeah. terms of the, 
we've talked about the question clusters a lot. Yeah. But I understand what we've been saying a lot better this morning, mm -hmm. because you know the lane to say intent and now strength is very clear. Yeah. Yeah. No, Phil.